all do not know God's glory. But all hope is not lost, and that's how chapter 3 ends. And it says, no, there is a righteousness. Y'all just don't know it. There is a goodness. It's just not in you. And this is in chapter 3, and it tells us that it is in Christ. It's in Jesus. And so then you begin to ask, okay, well, how do I get it? Chapter 4 introduces Abraham and how Abraham, the sinner that he was, believed the promises of God. And if somebody will believe the promises of God, not so much do something to get right with God, but rather believe what God has said, God will then take Jesus' righteousness and put it into them. He will credit your account, your soul's account, as righteous, simply by believing. It's outstanding. That's chapter 4. And then chapter 5 of Romans begins to introduce, if that's you, well, think about all the things that you get. You get forgiveness, and you get the love of God, and you get hope, and you get perseverance, and you get endurance, and you get character, and you get all of these things if you are right with God. It's a great way to be. It's a great way to live. It's a great position to be in. And while it's talking about the position that you're in, it introduces that absolutely everybody is in one of two positions. You're either still in Adam, or you've come to be in Christ. And it goes on and on in chapter 5 of saying what it's like to be in Adam. If you're in Adam, then you are uh, characterized by disobedience. But if you're in Christ, you're characterized by obedience. If you're in Adam, you're characterized by condemnation. That's all that's on you. But if you're in Christ, you're characterized by justification. Jesus has made me right. If you're in Adam, your life is characterized, although you may deny it, your life is characterized by death. But in Christ, your life is characterized by life. And chapter 5 goes back and forth with all these parallels of in Adam or in Christ, in Adam or in Christ, it's outstanding. And then you get into chapter 6, and it introduces something totally different. Well, what about sin? Can we still sin? Do we still sin? Is it okay? How should I think about sin? And obviously, the answer is no. We're not supposed to sin. We are not supposed to want to sin. And we should have a, a feeling of sin is wrong, and I don't want to sin. Well, then chapter 7 says, okay, well, why do we still? And we still do sin, and it introduces the struggle with sin, and how am I supposed to make sense of that? Why am I still sinning if God's made me new, and now I'm characterized by obedience, I'm characterized by justification, I'm characterized by life, why am I still sinning? And it talks about that. And then chapter 8 introduces this beautiful, beautiful picture of life, and freedom, and goodness, and the Holy Spirit's present in presence in our lives and all that that brings and that's just the first eight chapters there's 16 chapters in romans and the first eight chapters of romans are explaining all of that it's such a good study to go through the book of romans and then you get to chapter nine and paul starts to cover the heavy the heavy parts as if those aren't heavy enough in chapter nine paul introduces that there are some people that aren't being saved Y'all, some people don't want to believe in Jesus. Some people deny the truth of God. And I know that living here in the United States of America, Kentucky at that, it's still pretty much a given that the Word of God is respected. Even among people who don't believe, there's still a lot of respect for God's Word. There is. We were at a birthday party this afternoon, and it was for a little kid, and somebody showed me a card that said, it showed a little baby that was upset on the front of the card, and it said uh, something to the effect of, 
if somebody upsets you, remember what you learned in Sunday school. And then you open it up, and it says, turn the other cheek. It's a picture of a baby, baby's behind with its diaper pulled down. Turn the other cheek. Kind of funny, right? But still being built upon the idea that turn the other cheek is from the Bible and a Sunday school lesson and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of that in our, in our world of at least somewhat of a uh, mind toward God's word. And yet with that, there are so many that do not believe. So many that do not believe God's word and do not believe that Jesus is Lord. Do not believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And Paul is picking up on this. More specifically than just people being saved, Paul is bringing up the idea that some Jews are not going to be saved. I know you don't think much about Judaism, but I want to get you to think for a minute about the people of God not being the people of God, if there's such a thing. The Jews are the people that God first came to. So much, maybe everything, that we understand about God that has come to us from God has come to us from God through the Jewish people. We got it by way of the Jewish people, and some of those people that God went through to get it to us are not going to believe or have not believed. And this is troubling to think that there are those that will not believe. To make that scenario a little bit more real, let me say it like this. There are people that you know and that you love, love dearly. People that are so precious to you that do not believe in Jesus. And as I talked in chapter 5 about in Adam and in Christ, you liked it because you're thinking of yourself being in Christ. But for everyone who is not in Christ, they remain in Adam. And in Adam, the wages of sin is death. And there's only condemnation and judgment and death. Paul is dealing with this when he gets to chapter 9. Read with me in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I don't hear us talk like that that much. I don't know when was the last time that you've been that heavy-hearted. I don't know if you've ever been burdened for someone. But Paul is burdened here. And not only for an individual, but for a group of people. He states his emotions in a way that is almost like an exaggeration, almost like he's piling it on. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. The only time I hear people speak like that, if they do, is in a tragic death, in the funeral home, when somebody they love has passed away. Now, I do hear people talk like that, when they're dealing with a, a hard loss. But I don't hear people talk like that much over the salvation of people. For Paul to understand how sincere he is, right? I know that we may hear people give lip service to, I want somebody to be saved, or I hope that they're Christian, or I hope they get to know the Lord. 
even though that's rare, Paul is serious. Look what he says at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. Five sort of phrases in verse 1, disclaimers, if you will, seeking to uh, prove or validate his sincerity. If verse 2 isn't sincere enough with great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, verse 1 says in five different ways, I'm telling you the truth, in Jesus, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's got Christ, he's got the Holy Spirit, he's got his conscience, he's not lying, he's serious about this, y'all. He's upset. He's upset. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Before we go any further, I want to tell you that you need to feel this way. And if you don't ever feel this way, you don't know anybody to feel this way toward, then, then we have a problem inside of us. Spiritually speaking, we must grow closer to God. We must think more deeply. We must learn to feel we must learn to feel sorrow and anguish in our hearts for people. Could it be that the reason that more and more people don't want what we have is because they don't see that it bothers us that they don't have it? Isn't that a real perspective to come from? Couldn't it, let me say that again, couldn't it be that more and more people don't want what we have, that the treasure that we have, because they don't see that it's bothering us that they don't have it. They don't see that. They don't see that bother. They don't see the anguish in us. They don't see the sorrow in us. Paul's people certainly did. Let me ask you, how did these people how did these people know that Paul felt this way? Let me hear from you. How did they know that he lived with great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart? That's right. That's exactly right. He continued to go to them. He did. He continued to go to them. He was vocal about it. He would go to them in writings. He would go to them in person. He would go and preach to them. He would. You're right. He was vocal about it. To take that a step further, vocal about it, what would be the next step of how they would know about his anguish and sorrow? He was vocal about it, and then what? He lived it. That's right. And he was vocal about it, and he lived it, even to the extent of negative consequences, right? They all knew that. One of the things that we see all the time, especially in young people's lives, when their parents are kind of not as committed to Christ and the church as, as they are, is all of a sudden the, the, the young people will want to do something like go on a mission trip or go into the ministry or something like that. And the parents start to think that, whoa, this religion that you found yourself in is starting to become a detriment to you. You don't have enough money to be going on a mission trip or you don't have enough money to be doing this or, or that. And you hear that, right? And it's, their ears don't perk up and their eyes don't open until they see that you're willing to take some steps backwards 
from the world's perspective in order to show your faithfulness to Jesus. Do you remember when Paul started bragging? Remember he said the super apostles in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12? And he said, I know y'all are super apostles, but let me brag for a few moments. And he goes through his credentials, and his credentials are, yeah, I got killed three times, and I was shipwrecked, and I've been beaten, and, and 49 times minus one, 40 times minus one, they beat me on the back five times. Right? And he goes through all this crazy stuff. Paul sees that as validating his sincerity in what he said. He was vocal about it, as, as Mr. Bill has said, that he has sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Well, let's keep reading and see about who. Verse 3. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So this is who he's talking about, his brothers, his brothers and sisters. He's talking about uh, those who are Jews. Paul himself is a Jew, and this is who he's talking about. My kinsmen according to the flesh. <clears throat> now I want to ask you why. Why is he so burdened? What's causing the sorrow and anguish? And before we read, let's just hear what maybe one or two or three answers of what it is. What is causing the sorrow and anguish in his heart? They don't believe, okay. Great answer. What's what's maybe another answer? That's right. Th their unbelief, the consequences of their unbelief, and if you wanted to add one more, let's say the benefits of belief. Their belief, the consequences of unbelief, and the benefits of belief. All of that is lacking. We don't think about that much, and perhaps reason, the reason why there's less sorrow and anguish in our hearts is because we don't think about those aspects of it as much. Let's read. Look what he says. <coughs> They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. In other words, all the things that we understand from God in his redemptive history and his salvation plan came through them. The very people that I am learning from and building what I believe off of, so many of them do not believe. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these huge leaders in the Bible that we build so much of our doctrine off of, came, they're the start of Judaism, and the Jews don't even believe them. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, just as a side note, this is one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture that Jesus is God. Does everybody see that right there? He says, from them came the Christ only according to the flesh, and he is God over all. Does everybody see that? The next time somebody questions you about Jesus not being God, and it's very common these days, turn them to Romans 9, 5, and show that the New Testament here says that Jesus is the Christ. He came from the Jews only according to the flesh, and that he is God over all. But Paul here is burdened with sorrow and anguish in his heart because these people of all people should be understanding God. I want to remind you here tonight that to understand a lot of things about God does not mean that you will believe. 
Belief is not knowledge. Belief is not knowledge only. Belief is knowledge of the truth that leads your heart to a conviction that leads you to turn away from your sins and to believe in the Savior. When somebody does not believe that they need to be saved, okay? Not, not just believing in God, but when somebody does not believe that they need to be saved, that they need to get right, that they need to be forgiven of their sins. When somebody does not believe that, the Bible teaches us that they are condemned in their sins, they are dead in their sins, and that they are against God. And they are against God now while they're living, and if they were to die before they were to get right with God, then they would be punished by God, judged by God, face the wrath of God in hell forever. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Paul say this about Gentiles in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul says that all wrong living is a pushing down of the truth. In other words, the smallest little sins that we do or the biggest sins that we do, every time we do it, nobody may be saying it out loud, the writing may not be on the wall, but what is actually happening in all of our sins is we are taking the truth of God and pushing it down. We are saying, God's not so true, I am more true. The way I want to live is more true. And Paul is stating here from the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is against that. Well, when you turn the page to the second chapter, Paul is now looking at the Jews who sin differently but still sin. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We need to hear this chapter because this today is where the church is, in many ways, more guilty. Yes, we may be able to look at those in Romans chapter 1 and recognize that their sinfulness is wayward, and you know that Romans chapter 1 deals with sexual sins, and they're all over the place, and idolatry, and all that sort of stuff. And it's easy to say, man, these people are messed up. And then you get in chapter 2, and it's a, a sinfulness from our heart. Uh, it's a pointing the finger type of sin. It's a, it's a proud sinfulness. It's a hardened sinfulness. And Paul makes the strong statement to them, the wrath of God is coming against you too. He sums that up in chapter 3 by saying it's coming on all of us. For all have sinned. And so, you turn back to Romans chapter 9, and anybody that does not believe is against God. Their unbelief has consequences to it. But yet on the other hand, as I was saying, anybody that does not believe means they're not understanding life. Since our kids started school and are, and are, and are on different, different, this school year and on different schedules, and I, I tell you all about this a lot on Wednesday nights, we started reading the Proverbs more often. I didn't used to read the Proverbs with my boys, but now we read the Proverbs each morning with the boys. And it's amazing there how much practical advice there is for life. 
in the morning, sometimes walking out the door, sometimes in the car as we're driving, I can always find one verse or one little nugget that's just kind of like a pat on the back to my boys who are professing in Christ as they walk into school of how it, what it's like in your head to live for Jesus. Something as small as God opposes the proud. Something as small as, hey, be quick to listen. Something as small as, um, do not exalt yourself. This is found in the, in the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those who don't believe, do not have those benefits of salvation. They don't understand life. They don't have forgiveness. They don't have a cleansed conscience. Do you realize that about so many people that, that are living among you? They don't believe, but their conscience is guilty. They don't understand life. They often don't understand what it means to be the right husband or the right father or the right wife or the right mother or, or neighbor or friend because ultimately understanding these things come from God. They don't understand how to balance uh, wealth with giving and enjoying. They don't understand how to, bit, how to balance life and strength with work ethic and exercise and leisure. These things are only understood from God. And there are great benefits to belief. Paul knows that true happiness, real joy, the treasure of life is found in our salvation. It's found in knowing God. And so we read here at Romans chapter 9 that Paul, feeling for them, has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. I opened up with Psalm 130, where the psalmist does a similar thing. He's burdened over his own sins. He says, and if God was to count sins, who could stand? But with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. He's comforted with knowing it's okay to confess his sins. He's comforted with knowing that God is a forgiving God. And then from there in Psalm 130, he begins to speak about his people, the people of Israel. He's burdened for them as well. I want to ask us here tonight, what keeps us from being burdened and are you burdened? Do you pray daily for the salvation of others? Do you ask God not only to save them, but ask God to so move you in a way that will help him reach them? Do you realize that God uses us? God uses people? One of the things that's always encouraging to me when I, when I get discouraged is to think about some of you all and then think about some uh, other people who have gotten connected to our church through you all and kind of look at the web that, that God has created in how he uses us to reach people. I will say that on Wednesday night when I gave you all those cards, I was encouraged because there were several of those that just straight up asked me to pray for the salvation of friends and loved ones or even family members. Several of the cards were you asking me to pray for the salvation of, of your children, and I was very much so encouraged by that. I was moved this week reading Romans 9-2. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. You know that somebody that feels that deeply is willing to work hard, or rather be a servant, that God may use him in their lives. 
there's a poster that hangs upstairs right outside my office that says, if sinners are to be damned to hell, may they have to leap over our dead bodies to get there. It's a quote from the great English preacher, Baptist preacher Spurgeon from over a hundred years ago. He's burdened. He's burdened. And his heart is saying, if somebody's not going to know God, may they have to get around me to get to that position. And Paul, not only as y'all have answered tonight, is doing that, but he feels it. And so as we end tonight, I want us to pray that we would feel that. A sorrow in our heart, an anguish in our heart, that those we're connected to would know Jesus. And may we begin to believe that God has positioned us where we are in our relationships, that he may use us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and as we do, I'm going to ask those that are going to serve the Lord's Supper to go ahead and come forward. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you now and we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us, God, of our sins and forgive us, God, that we, when we do not represent you well to those who are not believing, forgive us, God, for not caring deeply enough about it. God, we want to be like Paul in Romans 9, 2. Lord, we ask for sorrow and anguish in our hearts concerning others. Lord, we ask that as you create that in our hearts, that burden for people, that you would use us and give us power and strength to go and serve them. Father, thank you for our time here tonight, and thank you for Romans 9-2. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.